film and Belshazzar, Lord, uh, not a, a fictional story, not one just to uh, to give a message, Lord, but your very word and a true actual account uh, in which you were at work and you brought swift judgment. Help us to see uh, this text this morning, to understand it, and most of all, Lord, to see Christ in it. Thank you for our time together. Lead us and guide us now by your Holy Spirit. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen. So, uh, last week we began chapter 5 and all the things we've said. And now we're, uh, we're going to kind of unpack this thing and see what is happening in this lengthy text, in this story, in this narrative, in you, if you will, uh, that is a fairly known story from childhood of this hand writing on the wall and what it means. And so let's, uh, let's just begin dissecting it, if we will. Uh, this first part, these first four verses from 13 to 16, what we see is a condescending king. We see a condescending king. We see one, you may, not, you may not see it as you first read through it, but as you unpack some of these words and phrases that Belshazzar is saying towards Daniel, you see someone who doesn't have respect for Daniel. You see someone who doesn't have the same attitude that the queen mother does there uh, in, uh, right before verse 13. You see a condescending king. You see there in verse 13, it says, Then Daniel was brought in before the king, and the king answered and said to Daniel, Oh, you are that Daniel, uh, one of the exiles of Judah. Uh, whom the king, my father, brought from Judah. So even just that one little line, he says so much about Daniel. He says, you're that one. I've, I've heard of you, as we'll say in just a moment. But he identifies him not as a Babylonian. He identifies him not as someone who's in his court. He doesn't identify and recognize the 60 years of, uh, of faithful ministry, if you will, for lack of better words, or at least faithful service to uh, the king's court. But he identifies him as an exile of Judah. He goes way back to when Daniel was a kid and says, that's who you are. You're an exile. You don't even belong here. You're that Daniel that I have heard of. You're one of those exiles that my father captured, he says. You are that Daniel, one of the exiles whom the king, my father, brought out of Judah. And so probably even just that one, that one sentence was meant to sting Daniel uh, as he is the one who is brought forth to bring his answer that none of his enchanters, none of his Chaldeans could do. And so here is, uh, here is that Daniel uh, the one from Judah. And so the king is, is condescending even just right out, of, right out of the gate. And he says, yes, I've heard of you. And that's, even that is insulting because likely, and we'll, we'll come across this fact a little bit later, but likely he has, he has firsthand knowledge of Daniel. Likely he was alive. Uh, well, he was definitely alive. But likely he was involved even in the king's court before he was co-regent whenever Daniel was doing all the things that we see in chapters 1 through 4. And he knows Daniel. He's seen what God has done through Daniel. He's seen how he has interacted with Nebuchadnezzar uh, and the kingdom of Babylon. But instead, he's just going to say, yeah, I've heard of you. Yeah, this Daniel that was taken from your land, who's an exile, who doesn't belong here. I've heard of you. But then he even goes on subtly, passive aggressively, if you will. I have heard there in verse 14, I have heard of you and the spirit of the gods is in you and the light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men and enchanters have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. And so even this 
this subtle doubt that's cast over what God has done in and through Daniel already. And likely not just in the times that we have in, in chapters 1 through 4, but surely many times in his service to Babylon, God has used him. And Belshazzar is, is probably very keenly aware of this. But instead, he says, uh, I have heard that you can do this. And now he continues, not only I have heard that you can give interpretation and solve problems, but he says, now, if you can read the writing and make known to its interpretation, the queen mother has already said, Belshazzar, this is the man, this is the guy, this is the one that, that will be able to translate this and interpret it and do all that you want. But he still has this doubt. If you can read this and you can make it known to me. And then he goes on to give this, um, uh, this reward. You shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. And again, even that, Belshazzar should know that Daniel doesn't care much about these earthly rewards. He has been there for some 60 years, has served multiple kings, and has been, been given all these accolades, at least early on in his service. And he should know this is not what he cares about. For as we see, as it seems from last week, that he's just kind of this, uh, he's just this guy who's kind of stuck off to the side. He's been kind of just uh, kind of forgotten about to a degree, and likely he is okay with that. But here's Belshazzar not getting it, because Belshazzar cares about one person, and that's himself. He cares about one thing, that's his kingdom. And he is consumed with his pride. He is consumed with himself, as we'll continue to see this morning. And so we see this condescending king in these first few verses. But then we turn to and we see this commanding prophet. We see Daniel have a chance to answer. So Belshazzar brings him in. Allows him to come in. He says all the things that he says. And probably has these, uh, these comments and this doubt in his mind. And then Daniel answers him, likely in a way that no one else would address a king of Babylon. Because the king of Babylon, this was not a democracy. If he got upset, he wouldn't bring his lords and ladies together and say, what we should do with him? If you were to upset the king, anyone knew and was well aware that it could be your head. But here is Daniel, not with his own boldness, not with his, even his own experience, but with the spirit of the Lord inside of him. As one who is faithful to the Lord, he gives an answer that is not what the king wants to hear. He addresses the king not in a way that everyone else would address the king of Babylon, but he addresses uh, the king as a mighty prophet of God. So here's Daniel. He says, he answers him and says before the king, let your gifts be for yourselves and give your rewards to another. He looks at the king of Babylon. He looks at the ruler of the known world. He says, keep your money. I don't want it. Keep your stuff. I don't need it. I don't need this power. I don't need this position. I don't need your shekels. I don't need all these things that you want to offer me. You can't buy me, King uh, Belshazzar. So it's not, I'm not going to do what you've asked me to do in order to get your stuff. Keep your money. But nevertheless, he says, I will. It says, nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. So I'm going to do it, but it's not for you. And it's not for the money. And it's not for all the things that you've offered. And it's not for all the reasons that everyone else wants to do. And it's not even to keep my head because I'm not worried. I'm not scared, King Belshazzar. But I will do this. And so 
Why would Daniel do this? Why would he be so, so confident and say, I'm going to do this, and it's not for these other reasons. What is his motivation? And his motivation is the same in Daniel 5 as it's been through Daniel 1 through 4, and as it will be until we end Daniel, and that is to honor the Lord. That is to walk with the Lord. That is to be a faithful servant of God because God has placed him in the kingdom of Babylon. He's kept him alive, kept him alive for all of these years in serving the Babylonian courts, so he knows he's still there, and so God is not done with him. And that's a great reminder for us believers today. How do you know if God is not done with you? Good, quick uh, test here. Good question we should ask ourselves. Lord, are you done with me? And it's a very simple uh, quiz you can give yourself. It's a very simple litmus test. You know that God is not done with you if you're alive. It's that simple. If you're alive, if you have breath in your lungs, then God is not done with you. So, and until he is done with you, you are immortal. Think about that. Nothing can happen to you. Nothing can occur to you. Nothing will ever take your life outside of God himself. And so until the Lord is done with us, he will always keep us and protect us. And Daniel knows this truth. Likely, no telling how many times his life has been in danger. But he has consistently looked to and trusted the Lord. And so it points to this foundational truth that all things, this is what he, as he speaks to the king, he's going to point to this foundational truth that all things come from the Lord God Almighty. So as he answers him, he says this, he says, let keep your stuff, keep your money, keep your rewards. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. Then he addresses him and he, and he reminds him of this truth. This truth, as we'll see, he should know. The truth that Nebuchadnezzar was taught. O king, the most high God, gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. So imagine being this king, Belshazzar. It's the first time that maybe you, you've uh, met Daniel, or at least the first time you've approached him like this, and you've asked him for a question, and the first response is, remember Nebuchadnezzar, the great king of Babylon, who was, who was your grandfather, remember him? Everything he had that was great was given to him by the God Almighty. Not your false gods of iron, stubble, and wood, and gold. Not these false gods. But the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, he gave him his kingship, he gave him his greatness, he gave him his glory, and he gave him his majesty. This came from God. And because of the, because of the greatness that he gave him, then all these things are true. Now he kind of describes what most people, how most people would describe a Babylonian king. Because this greatness that God gave him, then all the people's nations' languages trembled and feared him. Because God did this, whom he would, Nebuchadnezzar killed. Whom he would, Nebuchadnezzar kept alive. Whom he would, Nebuchadnezzar raised up. Nebuchadnezzar uh, humbled. But then something changes. Um, Daniel tells Belshazzar, when Nebuchadnezzar's heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, then something tragic if you will happen something very different happened he wasn't made great anymore he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him so daniel is reminding belshazzar of who's in control he's reminding belshazzar who the real king is here and you can only imagine Belshazzar as all these especially ancient kings who had everything they their heart could imagine had all the power they could possibly have to be reminded that he is not the true king. 
He is not truly empowered. But it is this most high God that Daniel speaks of. And reminds him, of the, he's reminded of his story of Nebuchadnezzar. And he sees the real hand that's behind the scene. It's not Nebuchadnezzar's hand. It's the hand of the mighty God. And he remembers his grandfather going crazy, right? Uh, he, just, he lost his mind for this season in which he, he, was, he left. He wasn't in the palace and he was eating weird food. And he was waking up in the fields and he was not acting himself. And now he sees from Belshazzar, this was because God was bringing him low. That God was humbling him. God was at work in him. Because it is God who raises up and it is God who brings low. So God humbled him. Until what? Since he was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling was that of wild donkeys and he was fed grass like an ox. His body was wet with the dew of heaven. Until, until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. So he says, all of this that happened to Nebuchadnezzar, all this that happened to Nebuchadnezzar, all of this that happened to this mighty king of Babylon, God was in charge of it. God was behind the scenes. God set him up for greatness, and God brought him low. And he brought him low for a specific reason, Belshazzar. He brought him low. He humbled him. He humiliated him for a reason so that Nebuchadnezzar would know who the Most High God is. He humiliated him so that he would know that God rules and reigns in the kingdom of men. That he's not just the king of the Jews. He's not just the king of Judah and Jerusalem. He's not just the king of his people that he captured. He's the king of the entire world. But then he continues. You just kind of see this finger, right? Like if he could reach Belshazzar, it's like just constantly going in his chest. And then in verse 22, And you, his son, and your your translation may say successor, which is probably a better word there because we know he's not his direct son, but you, his successor, his heir, you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled yourself, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this. So he wasn't giving him new knowledge. Oh, that's what happened to, to Nebuchadnezzar? He, he was, God was trying to teach him something, all these things, God was at work. So it's clear that he has heard this message, he's heard this story. He's heard the stories of the Most High God. He says, you knew all of this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. So Daniel is reminding the king of all that's happened to to Nebuchadnezzar. He's reminding him of all the things that that has already uh, uh, already come about. And now he's going from reminding the king of these truths to warning the king. To warning the king. He's given him a clear warning that you, you've heard this, you knew this, but yet you have not humbled yourself. And more specifically, you've lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. And then he cites what was just happening just moments before, right before the hand was on the wall, right before he called Daniel in, right before all this commotion, and the vessels of his house you have brought in before you. So they were having this party, and the king says, bring in the vessels. Oh, not just any vessel, but go to the royal treasury and bring in the vessels that we captured 60 years ago from the house of, uh, from, the, from the temple of God, from Judah. Bring in those. And not just that only he drank from them, but he desecrated them by him and his wives and his concubines and whole, the whole court drinking, drinking from them. 
You have brought them in before you. You and your lords, your wives, your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold and of bronze and iron and wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. So you are, you are desecrating this, um, this, these, these, uh, these items of the Lord. You are desecrating the temple of God and you're worshiping these false gods that have no substance. They can't hear, they can't see, they can't smell. So he's already talking about the Most High God who's in control of everything and he's comparing them to these false gods who can't even see or smell. And you've praised these false gods. But, it says there at the end of verse 23, but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all of your ways you have not honored. And so he's not only reminding the king of what's happened to Nebuchadnezzar, he is warning him of what's about to happen to him. He is bringing to the light that he has sinned against a holy God. He has trespassed in a place that he does not belong. He has blasphemed the one true God of the universe. That in worshiping these other gods, in worshiping himself, and living for himself, he has rejected the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The way that Daniel speaks to the king is similar to how other prophets have addressed Israel over the years. Whenever they break covenant with the Lord, it's actually a, uh, a word, um, it's a, a Hebrew word that it means lawsuit. Whenever the prophets bring before the people of God a lawsuit, go with me to Micah chapter 6. It's to your right a little bit. Just a two, three books over. I guess I got to find it first. Right before Nahum, I think. There you go. Micah chapter 6. So we see the prophet Micah here. And he is, in a similar way, he is bringing this indictment against the people of God. He is charging them with something similar to how Daniel has charged Belshazzar. First eight verses, Micah chapter 6. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains. You kind of hear this courtroom language a little bit. Let the hills hear your voice. Hear the mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against His people, and He will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery, and I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Behor, answered him and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord even this calling back to what God has done like Daniel did with Belshazzar with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high shall I come before him with burnt offerings with calves a year ago will the Lord be pleased with a thousand rams with ten thousands of rivers of oil shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul. He has told you, and this is what the Lord is looking for. He has told you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. 
And his indictment against Israel was they weren't doing these things. They were not uh, pursuing justice. They were not loving kindness. And they were not walking humbly with their God and whom they knew and whom had worked in their midst. And so here's Daniel with a very similar plea to Belshazzar. That you are not walking humbly with your God. He is consumed with his pride. Surely Belshazzar, he didn't seek justice. We don't see that clearly um, written in the text here, but you can only imagine being the tyrant that he was, that justice was not on his agenda. Surely he was not known for his kindness and love towards his people. His dad surely wasn't because he was run out of town. Nabonidus wasn't even there anymore. But clearly Belshazzar did not walk humbly with God. And one could say, well, wait, Belshazzar, he's not a Hebrew, he's not, uh, he's not a Jew, he's not from Israel, he's not in covenant with the one true God, so this indictment does not stand. Well, I'm glad you brought that objection up. Go with me to Romans chapter 5. It's in the New Testament. Six or seven books in. Romans chapter 5. And you can say, yes, he is under covenant with the Lord because God's first covenant was to man. His expectation of holiness was to man. In Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. And so we see from the very beginning, sin was this cancer that spread. From one person, from Adam. And this is the covenant God had. God created man and said, don't sin. So do everything you want to do, but don't go do this one thing. And man does immediately that one thing. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who, um, whose sinning was not like the transgressions of Adam who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. For the judgment following one trespass, one sin, brought condemnation. It wasn't about a quantity of sin. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, trespass death reigned through that one man, much more would those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through one man, Jesus Christ. Those who sin, sin against the holy God. And men have been sinning since the first man and the first woman, Adam and Eve. And they have committed the same, the same sin every time. They have sinned against the holy God. So who sins? Every single person. Every, it's not just the Jewish people who didn't keep the law of God. It's not even those who lived after the law of God was given to man. Every single person who's ever lived except one has committed continual sin through an entire life. 
But all it took, it says, was one sin to bring condemnation, one sin to bring judgment. We see God bringing his swift judgment against Belshazzar. As we said last week, as we compared Belshazzar to Nebuchadnezzar, God dealt differently with Nebuchadnezzar, but with Belshazzar, he is dealing swiftly. He is bringing his judgment. And so who sins every single person ever born is a sinner. Romans tells us specifically that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned. So hang on to that fact for a moment. So then Daniel, he interprets uh, for the king. He translates and interprets. He gives him uh, this warning. He gives him a reminder. He gives him this warning. And now he gives him the interpretation. So Daniel interprets for the king there in verse 24. Then from his presence, the hand was sent. And this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Because if you remember, the, the king's court, not only could they not uh, interpret it and know what it meant, they couldn't even translate it. They couldn't even read it. Many, many, tekel and parson. So this is the words that was written in plaster. We believe that it was written in Aramaic. And the way it was written was all consonants. And you couldn't, couldn't read this. You couldn't make sense of it. But Daniel, through the Holy Spirit, was able to read it, and not only read it, but interpret it. Many, many, tekel and parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Many, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. So here's this message. Many, many, tekel and parson. Translation the, the rough translation, if you look at the meaning of these words, if they were nouns, uh, the many means mina, M-I-N-A. It was, just, it, was a, it, was a, it was a weight, 500 grams, we believe. Shekel is what, um, is what tekel means. Tekel uh, translated shekel, and it's just a unit of measurement. has different weights to it, but ultimately shekel is a unit of measurement, specifically in most uh, cultures, a unit of currency. And then finally, Perez there, or Parson, depending on your translation, it was a half of a mina. So it was dividing a whole mina. So mina was this, uh, was this total measurement. Shekel, or the tekel, was this, uh, this unit of measurement, the basic unit. And Parson was half of, uh, of a mina. So these weights and measures. But Daniel, he didn't, he didn't, he didn't hone in on these units of measurement. All they had to do to connect to the interpretation, he interpreted it a little more clearly. He interpreted it as numbered, weighed, and divided. So he sees this message. He can, he can translate it. He can, he can speak into the language of the people. But it wasn't just a translation that was enough. It needed a little more than that. He interpreted, numbered, weighed, and divided. And so there's this the scale, if you will, that's forming here in this conversation, that you have been weighed, you have been measured, you've been found wanting, and your kingdom is going to be divided, Daniel proclaims to the king. And so we see this picture of scales of justice, if you will. And the scales of justice are such a deception. The scales of justice are such a deception People attempt to live their life 
believing that it takes more good to counter the bad they have done. Now think about your own life. Is that true? Maybe at earlier, maybe as you were growing up, maybe even now. Maybe you, uh, you clearly see that in your, uh, in your co-workers, in your family, in your friends. As we read the news, there just seems to be this, this mindset, this pervasive mindset, not just in our culture today, but throughout humanity, that if I can just do more good, and here's the scales, right? If I can just do more good than bad, then it'll kind of balance out because I know I've got to do a lot of good when I do a little bit of bad. And we felt that right before. When you commit sin in your life, you feel this natural course of penance. I've done something bad. God is angry at me. Now I need to go do lots of good. And that's good for humanitarian organizations. It's good to bring out the the guilt and folks to do good things. But that doesn't balance any scale of the true mighty God. Because how much good does it take? How much good do we have to do to balance the scales of our sin? So people attempt to live their life believing these scales exist. And it's this constant countering between good and bad. But there are two problems with that mindset. The first of which is this, is that no one is really good. No one is really good. So if we're living our life saying, I've got to be good enough to offset the bad in my life. And if that's the case, it's a big problem if you're not really good then it's just going to do this right here, right? It's all bad. There's nothing good. We say, John, you don't know me. You must be a wicked person because I'm not that bad. I'm like 90% good. Well, maybe 80% good. Well, you know what? Maybe six, you know, okay. I'm at least 55% good, John. And, you know, 45% bad. And the scales are in my favor. That's not what Scripture says. Jeremiah 17. You don't have to turn there. 9 and 10 say this. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick who can understand it i the lord search the heart i test the mind even to give to each man according to his ways and according to the results of his deeds now the word says the heart is sick go me to psalm 53 to get a clear picture of the heart psalm 53 the first three verses here The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. In verse 3, they have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who who does good, not even one. Nobody does good. Even on our best days, ultimately our intentions without Christ, without a new heart and a new life and the Spirit of God dwelling inside of us, none of us are good. And we, there seem to be people who are good, right? You say, well, I have a lost friend and, and they, they, they're ultimately they're, they're a good person, but they're really not. They're good-willed people, but they're no good people. Because there's none who do, who do good. And so this is the problem with if we're trying to balance these scales of justice, that no one does good. The second problem with it is this. How much good 
is enough. As we said earlier, how much good is enough? If, if this is the scale and we know we're, there's none good, how much good has to be done to balance that? And here's the issue, and we say it often here at North Hills, if you're a visitor with us, we'll let you hear it for the first time. It's not about quantity. It's not about how much sin we commit, as we saw in Romans. One sin is enough. But it's not even about what we do. We say, okay, it's just one sin. Well, how bad is the sin? It's not about how bad is the sin. It's who we sin against. And the best analogy we have for that, in my opinion, is this. It's if, let's just say, you have two men who are on the sidewalk and they get in a tussle. Is that still a word today? I had not heard it in a long time. They get a tussle. They get a fight. One gets mad at each other. And he hits, he hits the guy. He's not going to jail for that. He's not going to, you know, it's not going to be too bad. The cops are going to call. The cops shows up. They have this altercation. He hits them. They're going to talk about it. Well, let's say that guy, he turns to the cop. And he does the same thing. Same fist. Same, same, same place he lands the, the, the hit right there on his face. He hits the cop. What's going to happen? He's going to have a one-way ticket to the jailhouse, right? So he gets in the car and he goes to jail now. Same thing, different offense. And he gets to the jailhouse, and let's say he goes to court a week later, and he goes before the judge. And somehow he pulls a Will Smith and he runs on stage, and he hits the guy. Now, if he can hit the judge, is he going to have the same uh, repercussions? It's going to be even worse, right? Even worse. He does the same thing to a different person, to someone who has higher authority. Now, think about that with sin. It's not what we do. It's who we sin against. We sin against a holy, perfect God. And that's what makes our sin damnable. That's what makes our sin heinous. Who we sin against. And so how much good is enough to balance the scales whenever we sin against the holy God? And we know we don't just sin one time. There is continual wickedness in our heart apart from the Lord. We cannot do good enough good works apart from the saving work of jesus christ are rubbish says they're like filthy rags scripture says so our only hope our only hope on these scales of justice is the finished work of jesus and that it is applied to us by grace and through faith so apart from christ we will always be weighed, measured, and found wanting every single time. doesn't matter who you are or what you've accomplished or what you have done or haven't done. Without the finished work of Jesus applied to our life, we will always be found wanting. But in Christ, the scales of justice are tipped for our good and for His glory because of christ so as we wrap up daniel chapter 5 and as we we understand kind of what's happening here to belshazzar and we see that uh as we're going to see there in verse 20 29 he says you've been you've been weighed you've been measured you've been found wanting your king and your kingdom is going to be divided to the medes and persians as we said last week they're at the door at the doorstep then Belshazzar, he gave the command. He did what he said he was going to do. He gave to Daniel. He gave the clothes of purple, a chain of gold put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. And that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. God's judgment was executed on Belshazzar. 
And his judgment was not just his earthly death, but his judgment was his eternal death apart from the Lord. He did not place his hope and his faith in Christ. But I would say the real hope here, especially to the original audience, is the hope that God's people received knowing that God was in control. That God was in control of Nebuchadnezzar. That God was in control of Belshazzar. That God was going to be in control of Darius. That in the midst of especially their exile, when they were suffering under the regime of the kingdoms of man, that they could look to Daniel chapter 5. They could look to God at work. And they could see that God was always in control. That he had the power over the mightiest of kingdoms of man. And that his kingdom was far greater than any kingdom to come. That God was indeed greater than Babylon. As this was the last night of Babylon's reign. That they were about to be leveled and their kingdom given over to another. That he would be greater than the Mede and Persian Empire that was about to sprout up even greater. And he would be greater than the kingdom after that as we go to Daniel's dream in chapter 2. And years later, God's people would be Fearful again as the Roman Empire seemed to to thwart out the people of God. Jesus tells us in Luke chapter 12, verse 34, He tells the people, Do not be afraid, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So not only is God's kingdom greater than the kingdom of men, but God comforts His people. And why does God comfort His people? Because God loves us and God cares for us. God loved Daniel and cared for Daniel. God loved His people who are in exile. He never left them. He never forsake them. Because not only is His kingdom greater, but He comforts His people. And our God continues to reign over the kingdom of men. And isn't that comforting as the church? And no matter what happens in the news today, whenever, no matter what happens this, this week, this month, this year, that God is still sovereign and He still sits on the throne. Go with me as we wrap up to Matthew chapter 25. I want to end with this, this passage. Matthew 25, verse 31. 31 through 34 there, Matthew 25. When the Son of Man comes in His glory... And all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations. And he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates his sheep from the goats. And he will place his sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And so Christ is coming back. And He is coming to judge the nations. And He is coming to put a once and for all end to every kingdom of man and to establish His perfect kingdom forever. To every sinful nation and to every sinful king and to every sinful citizen, Christ the judge will one day say, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity, for I never knew you. But to Christ's elect, to his church, to the believers, he will say, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter now into the joy of your master. Let us pray. Lord, we do thank you for this day. We thank you for all the days that you've given us. And Lord, we do even pray, as the psalmist says, that you would teach us to number our days, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. 
And Lord, may we take confidence and great hope knowing that you have numbered our days. And the Lord, you do not weigh us based on our own work and effort, but that of Christ. And if there is one here this morning who has never looked to you and trusted you, Lord, and trusted in the work of Jesus and not the work of their own hands, may they look to you this morning. May they hear your spirit call. As we sing this morning, as we come to the communion tables, we have a chance to give, and as we leave this place, Lord, may we do so for your glory and your glory alone. Help us to respond in faith by your spirit now. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen.